Greetings, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much, a podcast on Reformation, theology, and history. And we have an exciting show today. Joining James and myself uh, today, this is Andrew, of course, we have uh, Dr. Samuel L. Bray, Dr. Drew Nathaniel Keene, and um, Dr. Bray is a professor of law at Notre Dame, and Dr. Keene teaches English at Georgia Southern University, and um, they have both written a lot, but and we're bringing them on the show, and I'm going to put in our show notes um, links to their websites, uh, and uh, we're bringing them on today to talk about the 1662 uh, prayer book. Uh, actually, the new edition of the 1662 prayer book, that is the international edition, uh, that came out through IVP, and um, it's uh, been been quite a big selling book um, amongst uh, people of Anglican uh, churchmanship, and so we're excited to dive into it and what led to the project, um, and so uh, thanks for being on, on y'all, thanks. Thank Our pleasure. You. And uh, James, of course, is here too. And um, delighted to have you on the show. I, I wanted to ask because this is my first time meeting y'all. And I know um, y'all taught a course recently through Davenant Institute. And uh, James was an auditor of that course. And so he really got the inside view of, uh, of all this content. Um, but I'm curious, just on, on a personal level, what led you um, to your interests in Anglican history and especially in being both co-editors to the 1662 prayer book, what, what led you to your interest in the prayer book and in Anglicanism? Um, I guess we'll start with, um, and of course, our listeners know I'm Drew, but I also go by Andrew, so I'm just going to stick with Andrew for the show, and, and Drew Keen will be Drew. So I guess starting with Drew. <laughs> well, I think there are several questions in there. Uh, interest in Anglican history, I could probably um, trace to my interest in English literature. Um, many of the important contributions to English literature have been made by Anglicans, and so that's that's sort of my earliest interest in Anglican history. Um, my interest in the prayer book uh, goes back to high school when I visited an Episcopal church for the first time, and uh, I was visiting with a friend of mine who, um, unbeknownst to me, she and her family sat on the front row. So as a visitor, I had all eyes on the back of my head. And then she handed me several uh, pieces of paper, a prayer book, and a hymnal. And I said, what am I supposed to do with all of this? She said, just do what I do. <laughs> so it was uh, a trial by fire, but I thought it was the most beautiful uh, worship service that I had ever experienced. And uh, so I got a copy of the prayer book for myself. That was the 79 prayer book and started using it on a daily basis. And uh the more I learned, the more I realized that what I liked about 1979 were not the parts that were unique to 1979, but the parts that it carried over from an older book. So I swam upstream to 1928 and found out that most of the things I liked about 1928 were not unique to 1928. Mm -hmm. I swam a little further up that stream and um, became interested in the 1662. Uh, then the other part of your question is about the origins of this project. Um, 
Well, actually, um, I, 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 I know I asked you, but can I ask you in a, in a little while about that? Because that's oh yeah, I'm I happy to say that. that part. Yes, yes. Oh yeah, I have that kind of part of a bigger question I have coming up. Um, just wanted to comment as a rector of the parish. I'm always kind of conscientious of like visitors when they're the accessibility shuffling around with different books. But I, as much as I want, we try to streamline certain things. I also just like to bet on hey. The, the liturgy really can speak for itself and people can be just drawn in, in and attracted to that. And so the shuffling around the books, they'll, they'll maybe just deal with uh, because, <laughs> because the, the worship will speak to them anyways. So, you know, um, and I'm just, who are some of your kind of, you know, influential English authors you said going way back, you know, you, English literature has always been a passion. Who are some of your, I don't know, a couple of your influences there? favorites uh, probably the earliest anglican writer i read was c.s lewis um mm -hmm. read everything i could get of him he's one of these anglican writers who of course transcends uh jurisdictional lines and so um christians of all stripes tend to appreciate his work um and that makes him kind of a gateway drug for future anglicans um but and also uh john dunn and george herbert uh, the metaphysical poets in the 17th century were some of the ones that pulled me further in. Yeah. Yeah. Any mere Christian can enjoy Lewis. So um, <laughs> no pun. Uh, Sam, uh, tell us about yourself. So it's striking for me how, how much the um, account Drew gave uh, overlaps with my own experience. So uh, for me, the first exposure to a prayer book was uh, being um, given one by a housemate when I was in law school, and it was a 1979 prayer book, uh, along with a book of uh, Charles Simeon's sermons, and um, which is a which is a great combination. And then um, I I too followed the 79 back upstream to the 28, and then back upstream from there to the to the 1662, which is the closest thing there is to a definitive classic prayer book for the entire Anglican world. Um, and it's still widely recognized as that. There were ones before that, but that's the uh, that's the kind of culminating. So, um, so that's a that's a kind of surface level um, um, uh, turns in the river kind of answer. Um, another another way to come at this is that um, um, the gifts that the prayer book offers. Uh, or at least the, the gifts that have been most important to me are the way it, it sets out a path for your Christian life, your, your uh, encounter with scripture, um, your prayer life. And it also, there's, there, not only does it teach you a lot, but there are some meta things it teaches you, um, like the, um, the path of Christian devotion, not being, um, each day trying to summon up some kind of new experience or new um uh it's 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 not mostly about learning new insights as much as just asking for additional faithfulness and walking along the path you already know um and there's a um you know the uh the Eugene Peterson line about uh, a long obedience in the same direction so um, that um, 
that is, there, there are lots of people who find refuge in the prayer book for lots of different reasons in times of emotional turmoil or other things. But I think particularly for people of a, of a more um, uh, intellectual uh, temperament, um, it's very easy to intellectualize your entire approach to faith. And then if you're always trying to find new things on the various intellectual frontiers you work on, to think that's the same thing that should carry over to your devotional life. One of the great things about the prayer book is uh, it's it's uh, it says no you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna come back and you're gonna start with the Lord's prayer. Mm-hmm. You're like like Jesus said you to be to enter the kingdom you need to be like a little child. So here you're gonna you're gonna start. No, you, you haven't outgrown the Lord's prayer. No, you haven't gotten you haven't gotten past it. It's still going to be the gateway to all of your devotions. So that kind of um, meta lesson was helpful for me, but. Um, uh, but it's certainly true that lots of different people are drawn to the prayer book for different things. To uh, piggyback off of that, um, I spent some years um, in a Presbyterian church, and um, I found that a very meaningful experience. I have um, very good things to say about Presbyterians, including the rich intellectual tradition. But one of the things that struck me and helped tip me over into Anglicanism was realizing that the way in which the prayer book is able to permeate your entire way of thinking and speaking um, is quite different than how the Westminster standards are able to operate within a Presbyterian tradition, because you're not repeating them on a daily basis. And so they just don't, they don't permeate, they don't sink down into the bones in the same way. So I think that the prayer book is a, a powerful tool for shaping uh, the mind into um, the mind of Christ. Um, and and its effect is not just confined to the Anglican tradition, because some of its phrases and ideas have seeped into the broader culture in a way that I think is missional. Um, even just the familiar, dearly beloved, everybody knows that. Everybody mm-hmm. thinks how a, a marriage ought to begin. Um, and I would also say that it provides a resource for something that I was already doing before I had any kind of knowledge about liturgy. I grew up in a tradition in which we were always encouraged to have a daily morning devotional time. And I learned how to do that from my grandparents. My grandmother told me, always start with the Psalms and then from the Psalms do a chapter of something else. So that pattern of starting with Psalms and then reading a chapter and then following it up with prayers that were fairly general, trying to cover a wide range of things, was a pattern I already knew. And so then when I started praying the daily office, I thought, oh, this this is what I'm already doing. It's just a deeper and more thoughtful version of that. So it it, um, it built on what I already thought was important as a christian yeah there's some people are sort of you know naturally liturgical um in a way um you know when you're saying when you're saying about just how you know dearly beloved is such a recognized it's the opening of a wedding and how it originally comes from the prayer book um you know i was i was raised lutheran and we certainly had great liturgical resource i was in missouri synod with the blue book the lbw um which is like a great hymnal but that's also 
if I correct in the Lutheran tradition, they usually have the hymnal and the the matins and all the the orders of worship in one resource. Um, but it's not in 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 a lot of liturgical churches, there isn't much emphasis on the liturgical resource that you even if it's so essential to the, even if they're using it all the time. But you know, the Book of Common Prayer has this status. Um, you know, it's a classic. Um, even non-Anglicans note the importance of it. Um, indeed, many English-speaking Christians, um, whether they're Baptist, Methodist, or even Roman Catholic, uh, have looked to the Book of Common Prayer for guidance in how to worship in the English language, um, in large part because um, it was the first worship resource in English, at least of its kind. You could correct me if there might there. I'm sure there may have been some other resources before that in English, but it's the first of its kind. Um, so it's really contributed to Christianity, broadly speaking, but also just humanity um, in a way, you know, so. Well, it's the first of its kind in a sense, because there were earlier English prayer books. There were primers um, and other devotional texts that that some lay people who could read would would get for themselves usually these were gentry um but it was the first of its kind in trying to combine between two covers everything that you would need to conduct public worship and by putting it between two covers and then making that cheap and accessible to everyone it um made it no longer a book for the professionals it was no longer just for the clergy. Um, in fact, we have we have records of uh, court cases in the 16th century of parishioners taking their rector to the ecclesiastical court, the bishop's court, saying, look, here's what the book says. It's not what he's doing. <laughs> I mean, that was very empowering for the laity um, in a remarkable and unprecedented way. I think it's particularly fascinating too. What I remember, one of the things I remember from the class that I took with y'all, um, the 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 1549 was really, and correct me if I if I misquote you here, but 1549 was really the first time in English worship where people were actually engaged in worship, um, because no, the normal. Um, the normal thing that people would do would just have their own private devotions as the priest was saying mass because most of them couldn't understand Latin. But then as soon as you have the vernacular uh, service or you have the English service, because um, I remember we had a long discussion about what vernacular actually means, mm. <laughs> but, uh, but we had, you had the English service for the first time and you had a, a kind of, um, versicle and response format where people had to actually participate. Um, and that was, that was a paradigm shift. Um, so I, I find that also particularly fascinating. Partly it was the shift from Latin to English and the prayer book is very emphatic on, um, uh, being in English. Um, and uh, there are certain parts of it where the rubrics say this needs to be done in English, um, just to make sure. Um, but another aspect of uh, what you're what you're identifying, James, is audibility. So there are a number of rubrics that say um, that the um, priest needs to turn toward the people. 
-hmm. or um, what it says about the sentences and the exhortation at the beginning of morning and evening prayer is that they need to be said in a loud voice. Now, that doesn't mean like shout and be as obnoxious as you can, but rather it's saying loud as opposed to inaudible. Mm -hmm. These are for the people. This is common prayer. And for it to be common prayer, you've got to hear it and you've got it's got to be in a language you understand now that doesn't mean everything in it you immediately like pick up and it just takes one time through it's supposed to um, be like a steady drop of rain dripping of rain all through your life and it's just these words run grooves down into your your soul but the uh, but there's an instant accessibility because it's in english and you can hear it and the, those two things are um pretty transformative so I find um, it fascinating that some of those rubrics still exist in the 1979 prayer book as well. So like at the beginning of um, right before the Sursum Corda in Eucharistic prayer one and right one, it says the people remain standing, the celebrant, whether bishop or priest faces them and sings or says. So it's either presupposing a move back to ad orientum celebration or it's a, a carryover from those previous iterations of the prayer book where um where it would be, you know, they would face a different direction, not the people, and therefore the people couldn't hear. You know, that's one of my favorite um, rubrics in 79, because many 79 users don't know that it's there. Mm -hmm. uh, the narrative is popularly that the 79 brought in uh, ad populum celebration, but it does not, in the rubrics, require that. In fact, that rubric reveals that, in fact, it assumed that it was going to continue to be ad orientum, which is what 1928 prescribed. Um, and so that development of ad orientum comes later um, and is not necessarily prescribed by 79. Also, the ad orientum was a change too. the earlier American prayer books say the right side and the 1662 says the north side. Right. Um, so that We've, we've had some moving around of the liturgical furniture in the 20th century. Right. Um, if I had a time machine and I went back to the day of Pentecost, which would have probably been in June of 1549. Um, June 9th. June 9th. So when the <laughs> first time the Book of Common Prayer was ever used for worship, it's so weird to think about, like as an Episcopalian, you know, Episcopalians and Anglicans, We've been used to hearing the Book of Common Prayer every Sunday for church, either our whole lives or ever since we have been an Episcopalian or Anglican. And it dawned on me that I was, you know, how elating and extraordinary this would have been for people who who come to church on this Sunday, and their whole lives they've been hearing it in Latin. For many of them, I'm sure, like didn't mind that. In fact, many of them probably grew uh, into, you know, a love for the liturgy as it was. But to hear the minister's mouth open, and it is the language they know and use, to hear prayers and colics spoken in the language they know it, and then use that Sunday for the first, that just struck me how amazing that would have been. Like, how was it, was it, do we have any way of knowing, was it received that way? Were people, was it just very, you know? There were, there were prayer book riots. Oh, um, well, <laughs> Yeah. So in London, there was a hotbed of evangelicals. And in many London churches, the prayer book had already been in use uh, before okay. Whitsunday. 
that's the day after which it had to be used. Okay. Um, and and Cranmer did do a service at St. Paul's Cathedral on that Whit Sunday, and it was a big deal. But there were churches in London that were already using earlier drafts. Um, you know, Ridley, for instance, was Bishop of London, so he he was already doing things. Was this um, the, this was this a St. Paul's predating the current St. Paul's? Yes, before okay. the fire. Okay. And uh, but there were other places, especially rural places, where the prayer book was um, a source of great alarm because, in particular, they were concerned about their prayers not working. So it wasn't the idea that we have that prayers are um, communication with God, that, that God is hearing your words and responding to exactly what you're asking isn't quite the way they would have thought of it because they weren't focused on the words as much as the form. This is the correct form. It is ancient and lawfully prescribed. And if we don't do it the right way, is God going to honor what we're doing? And so they were concerned about you know, the health of their souls and of their, uh, you know, immediate communities, what kind of disasters might be visited upon them if they didn't do it the right way. And so they were, there was lots of resistance. Um, and in places like Cornwall, for instance, where English wasn't much spoken, they, they didn't care that it was English more than they cared that it was Latin, right? They didn't know English. So they, you know, there, there were some difficulties, but then there were also lots of enthusiastic supporters too. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned court cases a little while ago, cause I don't know, um, this, which reminded me of Sam's background. Um, I didn't don't know if you, you mentioned this in the intro. So I was curious you with your background in law and being a professor of law, um, what, what led you to, um, the study of theology? I mean, I, there's definitely like, a there's definitely a lot of compatibility between those two disciplines and, and I could see someone's interest in one naturally, you know, bleeding over into the other. But but I don't know if you shared this in your intro, and I don't mean to go back to preliminaries here, but but I'm very curious. Well, I, I could come up with all sorts of ad hoc rationalizations <laughs> of about uh, uh, common points of interpretation of texts, including texts where it's not the the intent of an individual author but a a there's a a, a a transcendence of the individual intention in the text that makes certain kinds of uh intertextual moves not only open but like really important you're supposed to interpret the old and new testament together in christian theology um similarly um for a statute that one part was drafted by one member of congress and another part by a different one doesn't mean you're supposed to interpret them differently there's there, there it's like congress passes it or mm -hmm. all of this the the people ratify a provision of the constitution it, it, um so so i could come up with sort of explanations sure. like that yeah uh, and i could also talk about things i'm um um areas of, of work that bring the two together, such as canon law, for example, is something where um, you're never, you're never, you're never even a step away from law and you're never even a step away from theology because they're both completely um, suffusing it, at least if it's good. Um, but, um, but the honest candid answer is I was interested in uh, theology because of being a Christian. And so, um, so the, the, um, um, the, 
the interest begins avocationally before um, before there's there's more um, uh, sort of uh, contact with my with my uh, professional life. But uh, Lorraine Hansberry once said, uh, "What makes you uh, uh, what makes you um, uh, different? Well, I think it was what makes you different will make you lonely." Um, but there's also a, an advantage to that, which is what whatever you bring to any area of work, like for me, for, for law, whatever you area of your background you bring, um, that can, you can draw on that and bring different insights. And, uh, um, and so that's, that's been true for me. So I'm thinking about texts, um, figures of speech in the constitution, something I started thinking about from thinking about figures of speech and, uh, religious texts. And so, um, um, so I think, uh, I could give an answer that looks like an ex post rationalization. I mm -hmm. could give an answer that as well. I'm interested in it because I'm a Christian. Neither one of those fully captures it because there's a lot of interplay well, between the two. And, uh, and like I said, intellectual arbitrage. Truth to all of it. I, and it's, it is true that uh, it, texts are it, it, the, theology is an enterprise of, of never ending engaging with texts. So it all makes sense to me. So. Uh, and hopefully engaging, hopefully engaging not only with the text, but right. with the capital A author of the texts. Right. Amen to that. Just to uh, to follow up on that, I had um, well, my undergraduate degree is in Bible, and I had a a Bible professor who advised all of us to have a separate Bible for our study purposes and another one for our devotional purposes, and. Um, he thought that this would would help ensure that our devotional life didn't get ruined by our intellectual pursuit. And I always just fiercely opposed that advice and and uh, did precisely the opposite. And um, I think this might be something that Sam Bray and I have in common. Yeah, I, I think that's that dichotomy. I mean, I get there's a distinction, but to turn it into a dichotomy um, like that um, can be I wouldn't find very helpful. I don't know. It's also worth, uh, for for Sam's sake, bringing to mind the fact that the uh, th there is a rich history of lawyer theologians in the life of the church, um, especially Anglican lawyer. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking of like John Calvin, um, yeah. 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 But but also uh, one of my favorites is John Warwick Montgomery, um, brilliant uh, theologian and apologist. And I just read a book by one of his students, Craig Parton. Um, who wrote a book called a Def uh, The Defense Never Rests. He's a lawyer as well, but also has written extensively in apologetics. Um, and those are just, you know, a few off the top of my head. But as as Drew, you mentioned, there are a, a, a plethora, a panoply of options within Anglicanism that you could draw from there too. Well, and it ha just so happens my microphone happens to be sitting on not an Anglican example, but a German lawyer who studied uh, Luther's two kingdoms, Johannes Heckel. So, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, <clears throat> lawyers can do theology. So um, back on topic, why don't we talk about what we brought y'all here for? So um, you both, um, large, you know, why we're on the podcast, you, you both took part in this new edition of the prayer book, but it's actually not a new edition per se, because um, as we're aware now, we've, there's been past editions of the prayer book. Uh, Episcopal Church regularly uses most of them, the 1979 Book of Common Prayer. The ACNA um, 
I don't know the status. I know they have the 2019, but I don't know if that's universal, if they all use that. Um, well, yeah, yeah, actually, is it? Um, do some still use 79? What's the ACNA uh, tendency, I guess? Or the practice, if y'all may know, because I'm unaware. The 79 is authorized. The 2019 uh -huh. is authorized. I know that uh, I know of a church um, that uh, regularly uses the Kenyan prayer book. Um, I, I think it's local custom so long as your bishop's cool with it. But okay. uh, but prayer book services, at least, and, and Sam, uh, since I'm an Episcopalian and you're ACNA, you might have a bit more firsthand knowledge of this. Um, yeah, that that's that's what I know of. So. Which is where where you worship? What is used, Sam? Um, sixteen sixty two IE. But the okay. um, yeah, there's your the book. Two thousand nineteen <laughs> is is definitely the the most common. But there's um, but there's a, a wide um, wide variation um, that has to do with uh, the different jurisdictions that fed into it. Okay. There's also well, a complicating factor in all of this, and this is true in the Episcopal Church, which I belong to, and it's true in the ACNA which is the pro proliferation of service leaflets, which allow the clergy to do a copy and paste job. And so many places that say, well, we use this liturgy. They don't, in fact, use that liturgy. They mostly use that liturgy. And then they copy and paste uh, at the discretion of the local clergy to their heart's content. And so there's a lot of experimentation going on that's at least under-acknowledged, if not unacknowledged. Um, and because it's service leaflets, the um, the people in the pews typically don't know when you've gone off book, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I I think the service leaflet trend is, um, on the whole, um, more of a problem than it is a help. And the thing that it is supposed to help with, I'm not convinced it actually does help with, which is it's supposed to make it easier for visitors to come in and immediately plug into what's happening. And I don't think that it really does that. Mm -hmm. um, and I I think that um, we've lost a lot that we haven't fully acknowledged by, by transitioning away from the book to the leaflets. In particular, just the serendipity of discovery, you know, it, the young person bored to tears during a sermon, you know, which happens. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry to inform the clergy that happens. Uh, that they pull out the book and they go to the back and they found the articles of religion. Mm -hmm. And then they start to learn about their own tradition in ways that they would not be able to do otherwise because it's all between two covers. Right. Yeah. I remember being wow. a kid uh, fanning through. Of course, this is Missouri, so some part of it, you know, they'd have Bibles in the pews, but I, I remember going through the Bible <laughs> during sermons because uh, I was bored, and and it was probably okay with the parents because it's a Bible, so, you know, it's, it's not like a game. I didn't board. have that luxury. My dad was my priest, so he would he would always keep his eyes on me to make sure I was paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but there are there are a number of different, and this, this hopefully will dovetail with what uh, Sam and Drew are going to talk about a bit more, but but there are a number of different sort of local options that people will take. The most egregious that I've ever experienced was at a church in Maryland where the rector called the service her liturgical laboratory, and she 
took the Eucharist. Yes, I see the grimaces. It's it's bad. <laughs> going to get worse. She took the Eucharist and did it first, and then did the liturgy of the word second. So the Eucharist is completely divorced from the proclamation of the gospel. The sermon was everyone sitting in a discussion group and talking about the texts. So it it just bred more, you know, self-interest. Um, and uh, this person has now been elected a bishop, mind you. So Well, and we're not being fussed because I don't consider myself a liturgically f- fussy person. But, you know, there's to me, that's just, uh, I mean, just that type of just license someone takes um, just and to turn things into their their, you know, ultra experimental laboratory like what what was, what was communion and if it comes first what was the point of communion was it to like juice you up to have a good discussion because that's not what <laughs> the eucharist of course you know the the connection of the word and the sacrament of course is why we have the order of liturgy that we do so i you know it was snack time before class <laughs> I guess. snack time before class <laughs> what say you uh, to that drew and sam they're just over there like what are these guys doing <laughs> no i i served for six years on the standing commission on liturgy and music for the episcopal church so i can tell you i have seen some wild liturgical experimentation oh, yeah. um i know what's going on out there um and remarkably it's it's more often the um the younger people who are pushing hard to get back to the book mm-hmm yeah. And one one theme from this is that the um, the uniformity of having uh, a book, any book, but this is certainly part of Cranmer's uh, Cranmer's vision from the beginning, um, is that it is meant to um, package the prayers of the church and scripture for the people, for the laity, and it's meant to remove anything that gets in the way of that. And um, that means, if you, when you read Cranmer's preface, the original 1549 book, that means there are some good things that might be beautiful and ancient and so on that get in the way of that. And, and so you just, they, they get pushed aside because you're trying to, um, you're trying to um, streamline and simplify. So that all of the different monastic hours, for example, get reduced down to morning and evening prayer because this is a manageable way um, or a more manageable way uh, to have um, people uh, encounter the divine word and uh, um, say the prayers of the church. And so, um, and that it's not just people, but because the prayer book is written in a in a time when um a majority of the population was not literate. Uh, I'm thinking here, not 1662, but the first first one, uh, 1549 by Kramer. Majority of the population is not literate. Um, then you really do have a concern in the, both the construction of the text and the repetition and the consistency from day to day and week to week. You really have a concern for making it uh, understandable, intelligible for the full participation of people who do not know the words. So this is uh, for young children. This is for people who are not literate. This is for uh, for people with mental challenges. And so um, uh, we like to talk a good game for late modern liturgies about how participatory they are. But they're always participatory for people who can read the words and keep up with this week that's different than all the other weeks. Right. Um, 
but there is a very strong participatory for the laity. And in part, it's a check on the uh, um, liturgical laboratories, um, because you know what? You don't want to get those liturgical laboratories uh, 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 making uh, making Frankensteins. Um, but, but also, <laughs> yeah, right. there's just a very practical concern for making sure all God's people are brought along. None of God's people are left behind. And you really see that in the prayer book liturgies. Yeah, that... that um. That, that's something that I think is particularly helpful to, to focus on. I think one of the things that that makes me think of is um, the, the reality that the prayer book has and, and the prayer book liturgies all have a very formative function that they, they seek to form the believer. And um, that perhaps, um, and I've been I've been influenced, of course, by y'all on this, but also by Zach Hicks, who we've had on the podcast before as well. But could you perhaps talk about um, the cycles in the Eucharistic service, um, the law gospel cycles, perhaps um, in the Eucharistic service and how that can function as a as a formative tool in the life of the believer? Sam, do you want to speak to that first? So um, um, I'll say something initially and then feel free to jump in with anything, but including the, the Dunbar-Packer kind of uh, cyclical structure. Um, so um, one of the things you see in the construction of the Eucharistic service in the, um, in the, the classic BCPs is this uh, very careful sense that each step is passing the baton on to the next step. And preparing for you for the next step. Now there are some recursive things, and and Jewel pick up on those in a moment. But um, but what you begin with is um, is something you often don't hear very much now. Uh, but it is the law, and it is not the summary of the law, but it is the particularity of the law uh, in the Decalogue. Now to get you ready for that, you have uh, two things. You have before you have the Decalogue, you have the Lord's Prayer and you have uh, the Collect for Purity. And the Collect for Purity is one of those wonderful Anglican contributions to uh, 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 liturgical usage throughout the English-speaking world. Uh, it, it doesn't start in England, but the English translation of it does, but it's an old Latin prayer going back many centuries before the Reformation. Um, but each of those is really important for unpacking what Cranmer is interested in um, uh, with what's going to happen in the Eucharistic service. So to start with the Lord's Prayer, who says the Lord's Prayer? Well, in the, the classic BCPs, the Lord's Prayer at the beginning is said by everyone, all the, the priest and the people. Now, why? The changes from um, the medieval rites, so like in this uh, serum rite before, what, what's going to happen is the priest is going to say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the, and the people are not going to hear the priest say the Lord's Prayer. He's going to say it in the vestry before he comes out. It is a prayer of preparation for the person who's going to offer a sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Mass. Now, Cranmer, too, sees the Lord's Prayer as a prayer of preparation for the people who are going to offer a sacrifice. But what is the sacrifice going to be? The sacrifice is going to be a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving and ultimately of yourself in gratitude. And who is supposed to do that? Well, is the priest doing it for you? Or is that something that we're all supposed to do? 
So we're all supposed to do it. So who needs to say the Lord's Prayer at the beginning to get ready? Okay, so everybody's going to say it. Then you're going to say the Colic for Purity. And the Colic for Purity um, asks God to cleanse your heart so you can do two things. So you can worthily uh, um, uh, magnify and um, um, sincerely love him. You're trying to love and worship God. Um, so you want to love and worship God um, the way the, the, uh, the prayer puts it is, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. So you want to love and worship God. And that is exactly what the law, the Decalogue, is then going to unpack. So how do you orient your loves properly? You, I mean, you can just hear the Augustinian highlighter running through these, yeah. these uh, texts. Uh, so how do you orient your loves property, properly? So that interest in the law is there at the beginning. Now, of course, do we live up to that? No. So you get this immediate response to each one of the, the, the responses, the same to the first nine commandments. Um, uh, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. So what you're doing is saying we haven't done it, but you also want God to orient your heart. So you're back to the heart. Okay. So you're starting with law before you get to the gospel, before you get to the reading of the gospel, before you get to the response to the gospel and the creed. So you're, and before you get the visible representation of the gospel in the bread and the wine, but before you get to the gospel, you're getting the law. But that interest with the law at the beginning is an interest with the heart. It is not just an external checklist, but it is, um, which is why the, I mean, why the 10th commandment is about what the heart is desiring and coveting. That's the, that's, that's the bookend at the end. Um, and so that theme of the heart runs through all of us on the law. So it is about the law to get you ready for the gospel, uh, but it is searching. It's not just surface. Um, and so uh, that's where that's where uh, you begin. Just like similar pattern, morning and evening prayer, where are you going to begin? Um, similar pattern in the litany. You're going to have the deliverances from the um, uh, different uh, different things before you get to the prayers for certain things. So uh, it's it's in the warp and woof of all of these services. Same thing in the combination. We could work through it, the, the special Ash Wednesday service. So um, there's a pattern uh, of uh, uh, law than uh, gospel. But without, and this is one of the ways where you see that the prayer book clearly has reformed overtones, um, without any compunction about the third use of the law. Like the law is also supposed to be a moral guide to the uh, to the Christian, and um, that's uh, I mean it's not just Lord have mercy upon us as the response; it's also and incline our hearts to keep this law. So there's no um, no discomfort with the third use of the law in the Anglican liturgies. Yes, I think that's exactly right. This is this is um, one of the ways in which I think our reading of the services would differ from Zach Hicks. Um, it's not really a substantial difference because he does talk about this, but he's he sort of subsumes the response element, the self-offering underneath the gospel. He in his book, um, which which I reviewed recently and, and I admired very much, um, he has these helpful charts where he lays out certain services. And in the charts, he has a dyad of law, gospel, 
But then underneath gospel, he puts a subheading for faithful response that doesn't deserve to be a subheading. It deserves to be a third part. It's, it is substantial enough. It is consistent enough. It is robust enough to be a third part. Um, and it's interesting in the footnote for this dyad that he presents, he, he points to Packer and he points to Dunbar. Well, they present a triad, not a dyad, mm. of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Um, and this this comes from Luther, Luther's reading of Romans. Um, and uh, there's a turning point in Romans, at Romans 12. What happens in Romans 12, 1? The greatest, the greatest word in the letter, therefore, you know, because of all of this, present your bodies as an offering acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service, service there in the sense of liturgy. Right. Um, so that that pattern Luther that Luther saw in in Romans is the uh, the basic pattern that's repeated all throughout the prayer book. Now, I would also um, say that an analysis of the prayer book's communion service should never just begin with the communion service because it was never said as a standalone service. Mm -hmm. It's always preceded by morning prayer. And then on Sundays, uh, the litany. Now, some some feasts, some red letter days uh, wouldn't fall on a Sunday, and so whether or not the litany was done on those red letter days um, is an interesting question. Um, it's possible it was, also possible it wasn't. But the Sunday pattern is very clear: morning prayer, litany, communion. In which case, you get several cycles through the guilt, grace, and gratitude um, structure. And I think Dunbar described it beautifully when he said, it's not just um, a circle. It is a spiraling up. It is an ascent into heaven. And so that by the time you get to the Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts, you're in a very different place than you were when you heard um, the scripture move with us in sundry places to acknowledge and confess our manifold sins and wickedness. Right? You've gone through a whole journey, an upward journey. Um, and so the... the um, the communion service is not meant to be a standalone. It is meant to fit into that pattern. And in fact, all of the prayer book services fit into a daily pattern of morning and evening prayer. So that the analysis of any one service should always start with assuming this is the daily pattern. Everything else gets grafted onto it. So the baptism service, for instance, it's not a standalone service either. It says very clearly that it goes within morning or evening prayer at a certain point. So the analysis of it should include that as well. Um, I think we we have in the 20th century broken the services apart. And so we'll have special liturgies that are detached from any other liturgy. And maybe this is because we think people have too short of an attention span and they can't handle more than just one liturgy at a time. But it's a very different way of thinking about things than what the prayer book is doing. Mm -hmm. The most common complaint that I receive about the difference between right one and right two in the 1979 prayer book is that they don't like right one because it's too long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the concern is not even with the idiom, but with the length of the service. Well, this so, is also the reason why professional baseball games and Taylor Swift concerts are just 45 minutes. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I can't think of anything. I, I there's that article. I know we're off topic. There was that article recently about how Taylor Swift is like the new religion for millennials, or like a Taylor Swift concert. It's like a. I think it's for. I think it's probably for Zoomers, not millennials. This is the younger crowd. Yeah, or younger millennials. <laughs> yeah, I'm a millennial, and as a millennial, I find Taylor Taylor Swift concert. I mean, so uninspiring and soulless i just don't get uh the modern world but anyways um i mean gosh i mean it's not like seeing like the flectones that's a spiritual experience not uh taylor swift <laughs> but anyways i digress um what I, I was thinking about earlier um you know it's often said about the book of common prayer um that you know the beauty of the prose or that it's 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 so eloquently written that as if it fell out of heaven or something i mean i find myself saying things like that when i'm you know talking about the prayer book in a christian ed class or something and but um because i some i and for me maybe because for a modern hearer that it it does sound that way at least parts of the parts in the 79 that are retained from Cramner's language but but you wrote something, I don't remember where it was, one of you wrote something about how Kramner was actually not really that eloquent of a writer. He was, the, I believe you called him a mediocre poet, um, but you said that he had a sense of drama and perhaps that is what is coming through when we're so struck and moved by the language of the prayer book. Can you, can you, one of you, both of you elaborate on it, but what was his sense of drama? Was this part of his personality? Like, what do you mean by that? Uh, what, you know, I'm, I'm curious. I'll give an example of that. So I don't want to suggest that Cramer was a bad writer. Uh, he was a, a writer who was better in some genres than others, uh, which is, of course, true of every every um, every writer. Um, well, some writers are bad in all genres, but, um, yeah. but no, <laughs> no writer is given the gift of being good in every genre. Um, and Cramer was not a good poet. He could not write a good poem. I also don't think he could have written a good play. So, so when I say he has a, or we say he has a sense of drama, we're not saying um, uh, Marlowe, Shakespeare, yeah, not theater, Cranmer. But, but here, um, but the the particular, he had incredible linguistic gifts, and you can see this in the translation of the Collects, um, uh, for example. But. But the dramatic gift he had was not so much about language. I really think it's more about ceremonial. So um, so if you think about a baptism in the serum rite, you've got a lot of different ceremonies going on. There are lots of different, there are, um, uh, there are lots of different signings with the cross. Um, I, I read recently, I think there, there were eight. Um, there are, um, there's uh, going to be salt. There's going to be candles. They're going to be, um, you're going to have lots of different stuff happening. And uh, one of the things he does is he realizes that on, um, on the ceremonies and sort of the high points of a liturgy when you're constructing it for that, uh, there's a, a, a very strong less is more. This is, this is highly advanced in terms of uh, what we would now think about in um, terms of uh, decision costs and uh, um, information costs and your your ability to process lots of things. People aren't good at multitasking. You're really just attention switching. So um, he realizes that um, 
if you have all of these different things that are supposed to attract your attention, then it's hard for any of them to really get through. And so what he does is he strips a lot of them away, not all of them, but he's taking away a lot of them. And what he's doing is um, he really wants what's left to, to pop. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that happens in each of the, each of the services. Um, you can see it in the, um, in the communion service where the, like do this and then you do it is the is the high point that everything is building to. Um, you see it in the baptismal service with the um, the administration and then the uh, signing of the cross. That signing of the cross, which attracted so much ire from so many, um, uh, um, I realize it's a loose and kind of misleading word to use. So, uh, but I'll use it anyway because the sense gets across. So many Puritan critics hated um, the signing of the cross for so long, but they didn't hate it because it didn't have force. They didn't hate it because nobody's paying attention to this. They knew that it was part of, even though it's not part of the sacramental action, it is part of the dramatic center of the right. Um, And it's part of the dramatic center of the right because what Cranmer has done is stripped away lots of other competing centers. So now it's clear everything is building up to the baptism with water and then the signing with the cross. Mm-hmm. I like a lot what you said uh, throughout the podcast, Sam, about Cramner's. His approach to liturgy was simplifying things in the sense of getting rid of things that can easily become excess that take the attention away from what should be center, which is the good news in Christ. When I say that I'm not liturgically fussy, like I mentioned, that's what I mean. That That's why I feel like I'm an Anglican, because um, Cramner's liturgy is the, the even even as the, the broader prayer book tradition as it's been retained, um, the rubrics are very are minimal, really, and they leave room for lots of things. And at the same time, that's not the intention behind the broadness is not for liturgical laboratories, like the example that James gave. But it's um, it's to keep um, this. It's going with that simplicity is the intention of keeping our hearts and and minds and on what is should be a focus I, I i guess is what i meant by by that none of the excess i suppose well and and so like uh one of the things that that fascinates me about cranmer is that everything that he compiled i mean he digested an insane amount of material and created this wonderfully ordered book that has a very specific center as Sam was saying for each liturgy there are there are you know it's very very focused on the proclamation of the gospel um and like there's a big difference for me even you know with uh, with us being descendants of of Cranmer there's a big difference between going to my church which is probably low broad to going to Church of the Advent in Boston or St. Paul's K Street, where a lot of the um a lot of the things that were removed with the 1549 and 1552 have been added back in, things like the Orate Fratres and and other aspects of the liturgy 
that try to retrieve or recover a sort of pure serum right English Catholicism style of worship. Um, but for me, and this is speaking for myself, being deeply indebted to Protestantism, being a Protestant myself, I think there's a difference between the drama of the 1662 liturgy, which I've had this chance to celebrate several times, and it's absolutely breathtaking, and the trauma of attending <laughs> an Anglo-Catholic service that is so overbearing in the sense that, like, you know, Drew and Sam, when y'all were talking about the 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 medieval mass and you sent us that video of the medieval mass that had been redone the 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 reality of that is that it's so overfull of stuff and so much of it was either unintelligible because it was spoken lightly the secrets were you know kept quiet or was spoken in a language you didn't understand that like when i because I, I attended Church of the Abbot in Boston for three months when I lived in Boston and did CPE. And I would leave every Sunday and think, well, that was a great musical performance, but I really don't know what else I can say I got out of that. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that, you know, I'm not trying to trash Anglo-Catholicism or Anglo-Catholics. I can do that another time. But but I think that that there is an aspect to Cranmer and Cranmer's and, you know, the inheritance that Cramer left to Anglicanism that is, I think the quintessence of that is found in the 1662. Y'all have convinced me of that. And I think it's true. Um, and, and what we see today with a highly diversified perspective of Anglicanism. Does that make sense? So I, uh, we, we were talking earlier about how there were different reactions people had when on that, uh, uh, June 9th, uh, 1549, when the prayer book first gets rolled out in every, everywhere in, in England. Um, and those different reactions um, are not just a thing of the past. Uh, it's mm -hmm. certainly true now for, uh, for uh, our uh, brothers and sisters across the churchmanship spectrum uh, as, and uh, across the, uh, the denominational spectrum that... Uh, Lots of people be blessed by different kinds of services, and lots of people find those services a uh, a a step forward on their their um, Christian journey. Um, that being said, two two uh, other points. One is I do think Cranmer's concern about um, about watching out for. Um, how we can we can we can accumulate lots of things in our services and those can dull the impact of the things we're supposed to be building up to like that is an that is an insightful psychological observation about liturgy that can be applied in lots of different contexts you can you can apply that if you're assemblies of god you can apply that if you're using a 1662 you can apply that if you're using a um uh, Anglican Missal, you can apply that for, you know, lots of different contexts, but that, that is a perennial insight. Um, I do think that that's definitely right. I also think, um, James, you, you noted how, um, some, uh, people now like to go back and bring things from, uh, before the Reformation. 
and and that's that's certainly true. I don't I don't deny that. But I think it's also worth reflecting on just how much everybody is shaped by what Cranmer did, even if they don't realize it. So um, um, the um, in every uh, Anglican, Episcopalian, Catholic, I take Roman Catholic service. Um, now uh, I say everyone in almost every single one, there is going to be a very strong commitment to um, uh, the people knowing what's happening, the people being involved in what's happening, the um, the those sort of core principles that were so radical and revolutionary on that second Sunday in June in 1549 are now just so obvious and taken for granted um, that they permeate um, liturgies, uh, liturgies everywhere. Um, so there, there's a, there's a, there's a lot that's changed that we have grounds for gratitude to, uh, e even by people who have never seen uh, a, a, a prayer book uh, uh, written or largely drafted by Thomas Kramer. So uh, to add to that, um, first of all, we we I, we never said that Cranmer wasn't um, a skilled writer. We, we said that he wasn't a poet, and uh, Cranmer recognized that about himself because he didn't didn't impose his poetry on us in the prayer book. Um, mm -hmm. There's only one place where he did that's in the ordinal, which at, in his time wasn't in the prayer book; it was a separate book. Um, and then it got replaced in 1662 because everybody knew that it wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> but as a as a rhetorician, um, Cranmer is really brilliant. And as an early English, early modern English prose writer, he's unsurpassed. I mean, you compare his prose to some of the other prose writers of the time when early modern English is still. Uh, coming into its own, and you can see that he has remarkable clarity uh, in contrast to some of his peers. But accessibility, clarity, those were only half of his concerns in crafting language for the prayer book. Um, the word common had two major connotations. One was accessibility, but one was vulgar, you know, base. And Cranmer expressed a concern about not going in that direction too far. It's in his preface to the Great Bible, published in 1540. Half of that preface is concerned with what happens when you take the holy and you make it too common. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that we're in danger of because we we think that there's you can't go too far with making the language accessible. You can't go too far in making it simple. Um, but you can go too far. You know, you can you can turn it into the Coca-Cola <laughs> of worship. You know, you can make it um, so that it's no longer transcendent. It's only imminent. And you have to keep the imminence and the transcendence together. You have to know when you're praying to God that you're not just talking to your buddy. Right. Yes, you are able to be friends with God, but that is because the higher power has deigned to condescend to allow this to happen. You should never lose sight of the condescension in that. You should never lose sight of the fact that that was his mercy that's making it possible. It's not just a relationship between peers. 
Um, and so the language that he crafted is trying to reflect that. It's not um, that he wanted it to be flowery for the sake of being flowery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that he wanted it to be immediately recognizable as something at a level removed from the street. This is not just the way that we talk to each other. There's something else going on here, something that's uh, potentially quite dangerous mm-hmm. uh, if it's misused. And the the exhortations are really clear about the dangers involved in taking a holy thing and treating it as if it was just common. Um, you know, it tells people, don't be Judas. You know, if you if you haven't repented, get out. Don't don't proceed further in this service. It's got a warning label on it. So uh, we 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 uh, risk overemphasizing the common uh, in ways that Cranmer was trying to avoid. He was concerned about striking the right balance. The the snark in me would say, "Ask Uza how well accessibility to God worked out for him." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, um, it, when you said uh, when you just commented, Drew, about um he did not want to go in the direction of the vulgar, but as I'm understanding it here and there, he would draw from the, the common vulgar language. And if, if it would perhaps serve the higher purpose of, of, of the Holy, uh, it reminded me, of the, I was reading this in the 1662, the solemnization of marriage. A lot of this is retained, of course, in, in the present, right? Where we say, you know, marriage is not to be entered into lightly or unadvisedly, but in the 1662, after it says that it says, not to be entered in unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly, like brute beasts that have no understanding. <laughs> I've read that, and I couldn't help but laugh because I'm like, if I were at a ceremony today, and those were to come out of the priest's mouth, everyone kind of look, and and I'm sure people would even people who know the groom or something who know maybe a story about them in their past might even chuckle because they they may know the time when they were a brute beast. Um, so um, and I know we were pretty much almost up for time and we had a great discussion about Cramner, his genius if you will um his approach to um uh composing and um editing liturgy all great stuff and um i feel like several of our episodes kind of just uh go in that direction because it's really it's really good stuff but i do have to ask what brought you two together to do well, why, what was the reasoning behind this international edition, this green book when we're only releasing audio so listeners can't hear it, but this green book you can buy on Amazon or through IVP called the 1662 Prayer Book, but it's the international edition. And some churches in Anglicanism are presently using them as their prayer book. What what led to this edition? Why'd you go first, Drew? Well, so I, my beginning with this project, I was using the 1662, the English prayer book for my personal devotion, and I would make my own changes where necessary, just on an uh, individual basis. Um, Sam Bray somehow found out about me through my um, publications, mm-hmm. and we started corresponding about uh, some of the stuff he was writing and, uh, you know, uh, Anglican history questions, prayer book questions. And uh, eventually he said, um, could I call you? And so we, we got on the phone and he said, you know, wouldn't it be fun to do a new edition of 
1662 that had all the adaptations that that you make on an individual basis um and uh, you know maybe nobody's going to use it but but us but wouldn't it be fun to do it mm-hmm. and i said oh yeah that'd be great fun wonderful project i thought it was just shooting the breeze <laughs> and he said oh that's mm-hmm. great i'm gonna start a dropbox folder and we'll get to work so that's it started right then <laughs> Nice. So for both of us, there was uh, a lot of love for the 1662 prayer book. Like Drew said at the beginning of um, this call, the um, the things that attracted him to um, the 79 were the things from the 1928. And the things that attracted him to the 1928 were the things from the 1662. Um, so um, it's... Um, it's just such an incredible book in its simplicity, its clarity, its language, its um, uh, theological um, presentation of the gospel. It's just so good on so many dimensions, but there are some hurdles. There are obstacles to getting to it that make it just seem out of reach. Mm-hmm. So one of those is the state prayers. So when, when Drew's talking about making adaptations, um, that this is, there's not uh, like a lot of cutting and pasting going on. Um, we Our editing of the 1662 is very light and every change to any spoken text is all listed in a document at the uh, at the website that IVP put up for it. So um, so they're all the, the work is all shown there. Um, but the the major obstacle that people encounter is just that it has you praying for the king and queen of England. Um, and it does that throughout all the services in the 1662 in the royal family. Now, um, I certainly do not deny that it is good to pray for the royal family and that the royal family does on occasion need prayer. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but the prayers that we are supposed to pray for our rulers, the first Timothy two prayers for rulers are prayers for your own rulers, your own civil authorities, not other people's. Mm-hmm. Um so that's a that's an obstacle. Um, another obstacle is um, there are a few um, expressions that are not just are, are old, but are uh, obsolete and confusing. And so uh, and and sometimes so the traditional version of the Lord's Prayer, for example, that is the traditional prayer version in English all over the world, including in England. When the Archbishop of Canterbury wants to do a, a push for everybody to say the Lord's Prayer, and there's a traditional version and a contemporary version, the traditional version is going to be our Father who art in heaven, not as in the 1662 prayer book, our Father which art in heaven. Mm. So, um, so small adjustments like that yeah. remove an obstacle. And then the last obstacle is there are a lot of prayers people love that are in the 79 and the 28 and uh, the 2019 and other, especially prayers for lots of occasions that you don't get in um, the 1662. So uh, we have several appendices, and one is an appendix of those additional prayers. So basically, our aim is not to change the 1662, not to put uh, a spin on it one way or another, but just to remove the obstacles that allow people to get to it. And uh, it's been tremendously gratifying to see the uh, the incredible response to that, um, and um, that's the that's the goal. 
I think so it was the number well, one best-selling book in Anglicanism, at least for some time. I think that was the category, just Anglican Christianity was the best-selling on Amazon. So I'd say it was well-received. Well, I'm sorry, Drew. The, the, uh, the linguistic changes, sometimes I hear people say that we modernized the language, and um, that's very misleading to say. Um, we modernized spelling. Uh, we modernized punctuation. But in terms of modernizing language, we did less of that than the 1928 does. So if you think of the 1928 as Elizabethan English, yeah. we're a step further back than that. So that yes, there is some linguistic updating, but it is not a modernization. Mm -hmm. Right. And we were careful in the different um, tiers within the text for what we modernized. So we um, felt a little more of a free hand to modernize the language in rubrics and then um, did um, uh, some modernization than that becoming those who, for example, in collects and other prayers. Um, but we were especially for anything like canticles, chanted texts, we were uh, absolutely uh, scrupulous in, um, in avoiding textual changes if at all possible. So there's a um, there's there's different tiers um, within the text for uh, quite how light that modernization was. Mm -hmm. Well, I uh, encourage our listeners to pick a copy up. I don't know what it runs right now, but it's, it's affordable and accessible uh, and very compact. I mean, I don't know if they come in different size, but I like the size of mine. Um, great little prayer book um, that uh, can can even if for non-Anglicans who are interested, I mean, that's a good way, at least seeing the, seeing a, the, for the historical aspect as well, uh, just to discover the, the riches of, of, um, of the Anglican liturgy. So thank you, Sam. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, James, uh, for, for joining me today for a great discussion and uh, God bless for our listeners. Uh, we look forward to when uh, you tune in again with us. God bless.